right. The scripture for tonight is Revelation 1, 9 through 20. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his word was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. One of the uh, the best things uh, most of us saw at the beginning of um, sort of the shutdown and quarantine last spring was uh, John Krasinski's uh, Some Good News. Uh, surely some of you guys saw some of the episodes of that or even clips of it. You know, at one point he had uh, some hospital workers in Spain uh, who had fire trucks and police cars outside of their hospital just honking the horns, applauding their work. Uh, there was a man standing outside of uh, one hospital just holding a sign that said, thank you for saving my wife's life. Uh, there was one man in Alabama who uh, sang Amazing Grace to his wife who had Alzheimer's. And she heard him sing and woke up and began to sing with him. And everybody sort of watched that and tuned in to say, this really was sort of a balm to the soul in the midst of a dry and weary desert at that time. And I just want to ask you to reflect with me for five seconds. Why did that resonate so deeply with all of us? It was one of the few things in 2020 that sort of crossed political bounds uh, that uh, met us across racial div- uh, divisions and all sort of met us in this dark place and helped us resonate deeply with the hope. And the reason is because uh, in life, we have an urgent need for something to come into our experience while we are hurting and bring light into the darkness. Look, John is writing this letter uh, to us from Patmos. Uh, It's an island off of modern-day Turkey uh, where he was exiled and people would be sent uh, who wouldn't be condemned to death, but they'd be condemned for the rest of their life in exile. It'd be a bit like going to spend the last few days of your life uh, on Alcatraz. But he saw something here in this text that got him out of exile 
while he was still in exile. See, the book of Revelation, what it's designed to do is to destroy, as Richard Hayes said, common sense as a guide to life. And it's going to do that by reframing the present moments of your life in light of unforeseen present realities. And tonight, if you will look deeply with me at what John saw, what it will do is it will begin to help you in your little exiles. You know what I mean by exiles? While we're not still in in the the midst of isolation the the way we were eight months ago, there are still a lot of moments where we feel alone, where there's relational stress, where there's confusion about who we are in this world, where there's unforeseen hopes of our career that we wonder will he ever get met. And if you'll look with me at what John says, what it will do is begin to meet you in those and let light come into the exile. And so there's three things I want you to look at with me. One is what John saw. Secondly, what it'll do to you if you see it. And thirdly, how you can actually see it. So first, what John saw. The crux of this passage is that uh, John saw not something that just uh, to come from the future, but he saw something that was true right now that began to change his present moment. Now, what was it? Well, look in verse 13. He says this. In the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. What he saw, he says, uh, in the midst of the lampstands, and I'll come back to the lampstands, he says, was one like a son of man. And what he saw was earth shattering. You know, the, uh, the church in China, it's, it's actually technically not illegal to be a Christian in China. That, some people uh, misconstrue that. There's a state-sanctioned church in China that you can actually go to, and it's legal to be a Christian there. But the thing about the state-sanctioned church is that they allow it on one condition, that you do not teach the book of Revelation. And the passage that makes them say that is this one right here that John is talking about when he saw the Son of Man. Because the Son of Man, uh, it's a designation that comes from Daniel 7, where Daniel saw uh, the Ancient of Days, it's God himself, and this Son of Man who will take over Babylon. And what the Son of Man was, is it refers to one central figure in human history a heavenly being who uh, all people will owe their allegiance to, and he will come to establish uh, a kingdom that will never be overtaken. Uh, One German scholar, he said, the Son of Man is about the most pretentious title anyone could have used in the ancient Near East. And oh, by the way, this is the most often used title that Jesus said to describe himself. It's subversive, and it's a threat to the powers of this world. And so imagine this moment. What's happening is is John is by himself, like probably stuck in a cave or something, in exile and isolation. He's trying to practice worship on the Lord's day. And he turns around and he hears this voice. And it's a man in a robe and a golden sash around his chest. 
Now, the robe was probably like a priestly robe, like the, uh, the Old Testament priests. And the sash being around his chest is a big deal. Because if the sash is around his waist like a belt, what that means is that there's work to do. But if the sash is around the chest, what it means is all of the work is done. It is finished. And he turns around and he sees these seven descriptions of this man. Now, it's, it's important to sort of point out here that these descriptions are not meant to be descriptive. They're meant to be impressionistic. Uh, that is to sort of say, um, it's a reflection not of real life, but it's an impression of what a person or an object saw when they themselves looked at it. So it's meant to teach us and evoke and give us wonder in something. And here's the seven things he saw. He saw hairs on his head that were white as wool. This probably talks about the Son of Man being pure in wisdom. That there, there's nothing, there's no philosophical pundit, there's no knowledge out there that can undo him. He's wiser than anything anyone has ever thought. He saw eyes like a flame of fire. And as this man, he can penetrate your masks. He can pull back the veils of your soul and see the things that no one else can see. At this man, he won't just look at you, he will look through you. His feet were burnished like bronze. This comes from the, uh, the book of Daniel as well, because it talks about the kingdoms of this world having their feet set on clay. But this man, his feet are set on furnished bronze. That is, what he stands on is permanent. It's steady. It will never move. And then his voice, it roars like many waters. That is, his words, they don't just give peace. They are peace. And in his right hand, he holds tight as the hand of blessing. What is probably the church. That's what he tells us in verse 20. And then it says, in his mouth is a two-edged sword. That is, his words, they confront us with a reality like we have never considered. As it draws a line in your ultimate commitments, in your ultimate loves, and puts it in a way that no one else can put it. And then it says his face was shining like the sun. It's probably an overture to the ways in the Old Testament, specifically like Numbers 6, when we ask for God's face to shine upon us. That's his love. That's his blessing. That's his care. And it says this man, his face is shining as bright as the sun. And there's seven descriptions here. Now, the number seven in the book of Revelation is always a big deal. It's a poetic image of completeness. And one scholar that I've been reading on this, Eugene Peterson, he says the seven created descriptions here have this perfect chiastic structure. That is like this triangle structure. You have the white head and the shining face beginning as if it's like he comes with forgiveness and blessing. And then his eyes and his mouth come with what he cares to forgive us with and bless us with. And that's his words and his ability to see into our lives. And then what he cares for are his feet in his right hand. That is the church, his people, and the world itself that he can control. That the apex of all of it is his voice. Because what he says is what makes the difference. Now, if a man like this came to you, who was clearly in more control than you were, clearly see to the bottom of your soul and know things about you that you've never said to anybody else, 
that had power that was not matched or seen by anything else in the world, what would your reaction be? Probably justifiably, it would be like John's and it would be fear. But look in verse 17. Because after he sees it, when I saw him, he laid his right hand on me and he said, fear not. John has the curtain pulled back for him. And he saw someone who really controls everything. But he comes to him, and the first thing he wants to do is alleviate his fears. Man, we we are afraid people, are we not? We're, We're afraid to engage in relationships. We're afraid what other people think about us. We're afraid what we think about ourselves. We're afraid what our future is going to look like. We're afraid what we'll miss out on today, tomorrow, this weekend, in this life. We are so full of fear. That's what exile feels like. And what John is putting before us right here is to ask you this. What if the problem in your life is that you are fearful of the wrong things? Pepsi had a commercial uh, like eight or nine years ago uh, that I'm not sure it actually aired on TV. It was pretty hilarious. It took Jeff Gordon, uh, the NASCAR driver, or he's retired now, and it had him put on a wig and glasses and like fake facial hair, and he went to this car lot and dressed up like somebody who had no idea what they were doing. And he starts walking around, and this car salesman comes out and uh, says, hey, you interested in a car today? And he's like, yeah, I am. And he's looking at this Mustang. He's like, hey, how about this Mustang? You want to take it for a test drive? And He's like, no, I can't, I can't handle a Mustang. And the guy's like, oh, the only way to know is if you get in the car and try. So he's like, uh, okay, I'll give it a try. So they get in the car, and uh, he says, you know, you have to put it in first gear to go. And Jeff Gordon's like, I think I know how to do this. And they go zero to 70 in like two seconds, ripping out of the parking lot. He starts weaving in and out of traffic you know, ripping it around corners. And the guy in the passenger seat is just screaming. He's starting to cuss him out. He's threatening lawsuits. He's going to call the cops. He's just like head up against the window, ah, screaming. And the whole time, Jeff Gordon's just like doing his thing, not even flinching one time. Goes to one parking lot, does, you know, slams on the brakes and the clutch, does a 360, gets back on the road, comes back. The guy will not stop screaming the whole time. Pulls in the parking lot about 75 miles an hour, slams on the brakes and the clutch, spins it around, and perfectly lands it in between two cars. The one guy gets out and is screaming to call the cops immediately. And Jeff Gordon runs up to him and takes off the wig and takes off the glasses and takes off the facial hair. He goes, hey, hey, man, hey, it's me. It's Jeff Gordon. And the guy just pauses. And he sort of goes, oh, wow. Everything was probably okay the whole time. And he goes, do you want to do it again? And here's the thing. If you knew who had his hand on you in life, you would not fear. And even the scariest things in your life, you may look back on them and think, that might be exciting to do it again. That's what John saw. Secondly, though, what will happen if you actually see that? 
See, when John saw the voice, he had one reaction. It says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, the, the wonder, it just overwhelmed him. Why? But we're learning something here that is absolutely crucial if you're going to be a Christian and handle the trials of life and deal with your exiles. You know, I'm too young for it. Actually, your parents are probably too young for it. But, you know, Beatlemania was one of the most astonishing things that sort of ever penetrated our, our culture. And it was fascinating to read about because it puzzled psychologists. They couldn't make sense of all of these people screaming and fainting and just having, uh, you know, crazy crowd reactions to him every single time. And interestingly enough, the media mocked it and said these people are losers and nothing's going to come of their life. And no one could understand why are these people freaking out and doing this when they see the Beatles? And I'll tell you why. It's because the way to know you're in the presence of greatness is you cannot handle it. See, if it's actual greatness, it's too much to handle in life. And in the presence of God, if you actually get around it and see what John saw, you ought to have the clearest picture of yourself and the world that you've ever had. And when you have that picture, it will do one thing. It will undo you. Because at the heart of the universe is this absolute distinction between the creator and the creature. That God is the ultimate uncreated creator and we are created beings. And we are distinct from him both personally and experientially. We are different in being and in character. He is all powerful. We are feeble. He is perfect in light and we are tainted with darkness. And naturally, when we begin to get in touch with that distinction and hear that distinction, it actually feels threatening to us. But if you don't get in touch with this distinction, you're actually going to be really confused in life. Um, In 2013, um, at Syracuse University, their commencement speaker was George Saunders, the author. And the title of his commencement speech was on his biggest regrets in life. And he said... You know, of all the things that I've regretted to do in life, the thing I regret the most is the failure of kindness. And he tells this story about this uh, 10-year-old girl who transferred to his school and was sort of ignored and left out. And he said, I'm 40-something years old, and I still remember that, that I failed to be kind to this girl. And he says, why, why do you think we all struggle with the failure to kindness? He said, I'll tell you why. Each of us is born with a series of built-in confusions that are probably somehow Darwinian. These are, we're central to the universe. That is, our personal story is the main and most interesting story, the only story, and really the one you should care about the most. Secondly, we think we're separate from the universe. That is, there's an us and them out there. All that other junk, dogs and swing sets in the state of Nebraska, low-hanging clouds, and you know other people. Thirdly, he says, we think we're permanent. Death is real, okay, sure, for you, but not for me. Now, we really don't believe these things intellectually, we know better. But we believe them viscerally, and we live by them. And they cause us to prioritize our own needs over the needs of others, even though what we really want in our hearts is to be less selfish, more aware of actually what's happening in the present moment, and more open and more loving. 
Senate at Syracuse University. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? George Saunders is saying, at the center of our heart is confusion about the heart of the universe. You know, why does that matter? Here's why. Because if you live with that confusion, all of the exiles, all of your patmoses in life will have to be worked through like you're a victim in life. Now, some of you have had some real dark things come your way where you were a victim to something. But if you go through life believing you're only a victim in this world, here's what will happen. You'll begin to isolate yourself from everyone around you. It begins with those people who have really different political or religious or economic beliefs from you, but then it begins to trickle into the most significant relationships in your life that you care about. Your friends, your spouse, your children, your siblings, those people that begin to disagree with you, that confront you on something, that say something hard to you, that push you in a way where you need to have a mirror on your life, you will not be able to take it because they're hurting you. And so what you do is you'll cut them off. And you'll do that until you're all alone, stuck on your own little Patmos in an exile that you yourself created. And what's the way out of that? It's to fall down. See, what John has here is that the beauty of the Son of Man that came to him has allowed him to see his own darkness, his own brokenness to the point of falling down and feeling unworthy and being able to do it without fear. See, we initially think that this is self-hatred, but if you stop reading in verse 17, it it, it has the tendency to lead you to self-hatred. But when you see yourself in the way that John saw himself, the first thing that the gospel will do is come to you and say, he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last. See, John's brokenness and his in touch with this did not repel this son of man. It's actually what drew the son of man to him. And what John got was the right hand. Now, what's the right hand? Well, well, Paul tells us in Colossians 3, when Jesus ascended to the Father, what happened was he went into the throne room and he was seated at the right hand of the Father. It's the ultimate place of reward. It's the ultimate place of welcome. It's the ultimate place of blessing. It's the ultimate place of love. And John gets it. And it's not when he's praying or singing hymns or doing quiet times. It's when he's fallen down. See, this is the incredible irony of the gospel. It's not when you are most presentable do you experience the best parts of God. It's when you're completely undone do you see him in a way that you can finally change your life. See, what happened to Jesus on the cross is that God took his right hand off of him to the point that Jesus had to say, why have you forsaken me? So that you can come to him fallen down and know that his right hand will never be cursed. It will always be blessing. And that you can begin to get in touch with the darkest things, the the things that you have kept everybody out of and let them be out there in a way that you know this will not end in curse because the right hand of God will be on me. Has that happened to you? Have you experienced Jesus that way? Because when John saw him, that's what he saw and that's what happened to him. And that's how he began to get out of the exile.
Thirdly, though, how can you see it? How can you experience Jesus this way in a, in a way that will be some good news for what you're going through? The key is in verse 11, 16, and 20. He says, write, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. As John, this experience isn't just for you. Make sure the seven, remember seven's the complete number. It's all of the church. Make sure the church sees this too. And then he says this in verse 16, in his right hand held seven stars. And then we're told in verse 20, as for the mystery, the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, people have debated this for years, and there's a lot to think about this. But the word angels there is the Greek word angelos. And it's traditionally translated messenger. And there are times in the New Testament where it does translate to angels, like the beings who are different from human beings, who are huge and winged and sometimes fearful. But often that word is translated as messenger. And I'll tell you what I think John is doing here. Now he is saying, in Jesus' right hand are the ones who will bring you some good news. And if you want to access and see this Son of Man and see what I saw, you see it and you experience it in his people, the church. Guys, the only way to deal with your Patmos, to deal with your exiles, is to never do it alone, but to do it in actual community. And man at USC, our immediate reaction to this is, if I have time. But you will never be able to fall down. You'll never learn to fall down until you get into community. I mean, some of you, though, hear that and sort of say, I mean, I share those things with God. That's just me and him. I don't need to do that with other people. But Jesus is here saying, look, when you, when you share that vulnerable thing with your community, with your group, with your friend in the church or with that pastor, you're sharing it with me because they're in my right hand, in my hand of blessing. When you go love someone conversely, when you go act as somebody who represents the Son of Man, you're going as me. And a lot of us, so, you know, hear that and think, well, there just aren't safe people like this in the church to do this with. I mean, people aren't falling down. They're standing on their snobby morality. They're not loving at all. They, they, they never exude this beautiful Son of Man for us to experience. And I don't want to invalidate your experience, but here's what I can say with community. Stay with it. See, if you get one snippet of the trash of the church, it definitely will be ugly. But if you don't stay, you'll miss out on something beautiful. There's an amazing story about this little town in Paraguay. It's one of the poorest slums in Latin America. 2,500 people live on this like mountain of garbage. One day, a garbage uh, picker found a piece of trash that he thought looked kind of like a violin. And he brought it to this musician named Fabio Chavez. And Chavez actually took this piece of garbage and he made it into a violin. And then he began to kind of get a bug. He said, now I've got to try to make a cello and then a bass, and eventually he made an entire orchestra out of this trash heap, out of tin cans, out of hammer, hammers and wood, wood pallets, baking trays and forks. 
And he thought, what should I do with these instruments I've made out of trash? And he said, I know what I'll do. I'll teach the children in this town how to play them. And he created this thing that some of us have come to know as the landfill harmonic. It got so popular, they created a documentary of it. And here's the tagline of the documentary. The world sends us garbage and we send back music. You know what those lampstands are that John saw? That is, he saw God's landfill harmonic. See, what this son of man will do is he'll take the fallen down ones, the ones who maybe the world kicked them down and kicked them out, but they've fallen down into the church. They're ill-fitting pieces, and he will take them all and glue them together and then commission them to go out in the world with the upside-down music of his gospel love. And if you stay with this kind of community, you will see what John saw and it will be more than some good news. Let me pray. Jesus, if we can see what John saw, Lord, there, the exiles we're going through, I can't imagine what, what the little ones are that no one will talk about. Help us to just see the Son of Man, you, Jesus, like this, to come into our lives and to be the light shining in the darkness. Lord, help us to experience that. Help us to bring that, Lord, to those who are going through little exiles themselves at USC. In Jesus' name, amen.